I invite you to look with me at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 as we continue our series through the book of Genesis. Now, given the precedence of pace that we have set so far in Genesis, it might surprise you that we are going to read the entirety of the first chapter of Genesis uh, and consider the six days of creation. While I think there is merit in spending a sermon per day or, or something of that variety, I, th- I don't want to lose or miss the forest for the trees, particularly on the third day of creation and when God brings vegetation forth, forth, we don't want to lose the forest for the trees. But I hope that as we look at this whole chapter, uh, we will see the glory of God in his creation. But as a note up front, uh, we will pass over day six rather quickly this morning, and so I, I don't want you to think that we're leaving off God creating man in his image. We're going to back up and revisit that over the next two weeks. And so last week, as we noted, uh, Genesis is written uh, with a particular purpose in mind, that is to give an account of the origins of God's covenant people. As God brings a people out of Egyptian bondage, he reminds them uh, that the God who has delivered them out of slavery, delivered them out of bondage, delivered them out of the hands of Egypt, is the same God who brought forth the heavens and the earth by the word of his power. And we also noted last week uh, that Genesis, for that reason, is not intended to combat all of the challenges of modern science. And yet this morning, we are coming to a text and coming to a chapter that is probably some of the most challenged verses in all the Bible. While some would ignore them as fable and myth, and others would try to fit these verses within a framework uh, that fits within the truth claims of modern science, we this morning want to give special care and attention to the Word of God, that we receive it as a word from God, that we give priority to Scripture, and that we let Scripture speak first, and we let Scripture speak finally. And so if you have found your place in Genesis chapter 1, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from the water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, And the gathering of the water he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said that the earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, 
They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seeds. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird, for every bird of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Last week, as we gave consideration to the first few verses of Genesis, we left off with an earth that was formless and empty. In an instant, God created the heavens and the earth, bringing all that is into existence. The vast universe in which we live was created by God, who alone is eternal and self-existent. God, who existed before time, outside of time, and outside of the heavens and the earth, brings all things into existence out of nothing. And he made this in the very beginning And yet of all the vast cosmos that sprung forth by the word of God in a single verse, 30 more verses are devoted to God creating the earth. And that after the initial act of God's creation was left in a state that is called formless and empty. And this formlessness and this emptiness anticipates God's special and intentional work of God fashioning the earth as the stage upon which he will most fully display his glory through his plan of redemption. 
the beginning of creation, as we noted last week, one author said it was uninhabited and uninhabitable. It was unfinished and unfilled. And yet, at the end of the creation week, God looks upon his creation with a satisfaction that only the creator can have and calls it very good. In six days, God will form and fashion the earth with care and intentionality as a potter would place a lump of clay upon his will and with care and great intentionality fashioned it into a beautiful jar. So God takes the formless and empty earth and gives it shape and brings life into it. While some would say that the world that we observe happened over a period of billions of years, and even that by complete chance and randomness, uh, that everything sprung forth from a big bang and every, everything that lives come forth out of evolution, all of this denies the existence of this God who forms and fills the earth. They would say that something exists out of nothing, They would say that the existence of life does not prove God made it. The diversity of living things does not reveal a created order, nor does the beauty and order of it all point to an intelligent design. And yet, as we see here on the pages of Genesis, God forms and fills the earth to display his glory and to show his goodness to his creation. The days of creation, the acts of creation, everything we see in Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 31, are to reveal to us the goodness of God's character and his compassion towards his creatures. And it shows us that in doing this, God is a God of order. And so he forms and fills the earth to display his glory and goodness. And so as we consider these verses, these seven days of creation, I I want us to consider that in two points this morning. The first of which is that God forms the earth for his glory. God forms the earth for his glory. In the first three days of creation, God forms that which is formless. But before we dive into God forming the earth, bringing shape to that which is formless and empty in the beginning, we need to give consideration uh, to a few terms. One in particular is that word day. As we read through the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, we read that each day uh, there was evening and there was morning. And then at the conclusion of the day, God sees that all is good. But this is one of the places that there is a challenge normally brought to the creation account of Genesis. For science would say that the earth is 4.5 billion years old and and the the universe is 13.8 billion of years old. Even that, they would say, plus or minus a few millions of years for all of their claims to accuracy. I don't understand that you can be plus or minus a few million years and consider yourself to be accurate. But nonetheless, this is a challenge that has arisen particularly over the past 150 years with the gaining of traction of modern geology and of uh, modern theories of evolution. And so it may be stated as if this age of the earth has been concluded with complete objectivity. But I want us to note this morning that every truth claim is based upon some form of presupposition, some form of understanding of what the universe is. Your worldview shapes your understanding of the world that you are viewing. 
In other words, people have said that because there is no God, everything that we observe must be explained by natural processes. The earth can be explained apart from a creator. The earth can be explained without a worldwide flood. In other words, given enough time, anything that could be left to chance can come into existence. With enough time, the fossil records can be explained. With enough time, the variety of species can be explained. With enough time, the origin of life itself can be explained. What you hear in that is with enough time, we can chalk this whole thing up to mere chance and rather, rather than intelligent design, and we can reject the idea of a creator. And so we must understand that all so-called modern science regarding the age of the earth is built on the presupposition that the earth must be very old in order to explain everything that we observe. And problems further arise because Christians have claimed this and said, well, if science has proven that the earth is billions of years old, we have to make accommodation for it. And so in doing so, Christians have taken the Genesis account of Genesis 1 and have reinterpreted it and changed the meaning of words in order to accommodate modern science. Some have said that, well, we read in Scripture that a day is as a thousand years for God. And so this day that we read of in Genesis must be uh, a, a, a range, a length. It must be an age rather than one 24-hour day. Others have rejected that and said, well, there must be a gap somewhere in the Genesis account, particularly in between verse 1 and verse 2, that there's a gap there and that there was a creation that existed before. And so all of the, the fossils that we see and all of the rock layers and the billions of years that uh, science has so-called observed can be explained by the fact that there was actually a creation before the creation that we know now. And the reason that the earth is formless and empty in verse 2 is because there was something before. The problem with this is that, uh, that, that there is no evidence of this in Scripture. And while they would say that this is, this is the result of some judgment of God, perhaps upon the fall of Satan, Scripture says nothing of the sort. This is an effort to come up with a theory that would accommodate modern geology. Then some would say, well, okay, if, if science says evolution is true, then, then perhaps evolution is true, but God is the one who has ordered it, and God has brought all of these things to pass in some form of theistic evolution. And others have said, well, Genesis 1 really has nothing to do with the age of the earth, and it has nothing to do with God forming the earth. It's just a literary framework in which we can understand that God did make all things and, and the order in which he has brought to the world and the beauty with which he has brought to the world, but it says nothing of the way that God actually created the earth. The problem with each of these theories is that these theories are an effort to allow for the earth to be billions of years old. By trying to reconcile the Bible and science, these theories begin with the assumption that science has accurately dated the earth. And these theories then impose the billions of years on the biblical count of Genesis 1. But this is not the natural reading of the first chapter of Genesis. The natural reading is that there's God has created and brought into existence all things in six literal days. Beyond reading things into the text, there are greater problems with these theories. For in any of these theories, you have death 
and disease, and you have, uh, then you have sin before the fall of Adam. And greater than that, you have no historic Adam at all. There's no historic man and woman who uh, is God's special creation created in God's image, nor do you have a federal head through whom sin is imputed to all men by which we need a redeemer, nor do you have the biological ancestor of all men. This is not as much about the age of the earth as it is about protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we cannot trust Genesis 1, then how can we trust Matthew 1 when Jesus is spoken of as the son of Abraham and of Adam? Even, but, even with the gospel at stake, we certainly want to be intellectually honest. But I believe that six literal historical days is a biblically and scientifically tenable position. Now today we want to focus primarily on the fact that that's the biblically tenable position. For the majority of the uses of the word day in the Old Testament are referring to 24-hour days. In fact, even in the text, the day itself is defined as evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. Furthermore, any time that the word day is used with a numerical value in the Old Testament, first day, second day, eighth day, so, so, so on and so forth, or whether it's used in a numerical sequence, it is always in reference to a 24-hour day. Our work week, our seven-day week that we live by in this present world is modeled after the week of creation. Listen to Exodus 20, verse 11. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and declared it holy. In instituting his moral law, God has made clear through Moses that the world was made in six literal days. Verse 14 of Genesis chapter 1 says that the days, the sun and the moon and the stars will be for signs of days and years and of seasons. But I think the most important argument for the meaning of the word day to be six literal 24-hour days is that there is no other place in Scripture that we would question whether or not this word meant a literal six 24-hour days. Why do we not consider that Jonah was in the well for only three days? Why is it in three ages or three however longs? Even more importantly, regarding the gospel, how is it not said that Jesus is perhaps still in the tomb and that he's going to be there for three ages instead of three literal days? You see, when we begin reinterpreting the scripture to make accommodations, we risk the danger of losing the gospel that we're striving to protect. In an effort to accommodate modern science to keep the Bible true, we can go to the opposite extreme of losing the Bible altogether. And so God forms the earth in six literal days. As we look to the first day of creation, God brings light into existence. In verse 3 it says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning one day. 
You see, God speaks light into existence. And some might challenge and say, well, if you don't make the sun and the moon and all of those things until the fourth day, how is light brought into existence? Well, God is likely the light here. We read in Revelation chapter 22, at the end of all things, there'll be no need of sun nor moon, for the Lord himself will be the light of the new heaven and the new earth. But regardless, uh, we can understand and conceptualize that there would be light without the sun as the necessary light source. But God, after creating light, declares that it is good. And on each day of creation, as he brings things into existence, God will declare that it is good. And this refers to its quality and appropriateness for its purpose. One author said, The great artist admires his handiwork. It is good and perfect and will accomplish what he desires. When God looks at the work that he has made, he calls it good because it is fit for the purpose of which he has made it. But I think even more than this, it is good because it reflects the character of the God who made it. He who is good within himself has brought into existence that which is good. And we see the wisdom of God in knowing what is good. And so creation itself bears witness to the goodness and the greatness of God. Even in creation itself, we see the glory of God and His eternal attributes on display. We see His goodness in the things that He has made. And the things that He has made, He names them. We read there in verses 4 and 5 that He calls the light day and He calls the night or calls the darkness night. This implies God's sovereignty over it, for in naming it, it shows ownership that God owns what he has made and he has now named it. This is the first day. On day two, God creates the expanse, the, the firmament, which refers to the sky, and this separates the waters on the earth from the, the waters above. What we have here is God describing the creation of the sea and the waters on the earth, the oceans and the rivers and the lakes and all of those things. And then there is atmosphere between that, and we have clouds which would contain water and, and would rain down upon the earth. And so there's a separation between the waters below and the waters above the second day. And then on the third day, God does two things on the third day. He separates the waters so that the dry land appears, and he also causes the earth to produce vegetation and fruit and seed-bearing plants. And so God in creation sets the boundaries of the waters. He brings forth the dry land, uh, the earth upon which he is going to display his glory. This shows God's, God's goodness in bringing forth a land uh, that is going to be fit for inhabitation as he creates man in his image to fill and have dominion over it. And God has ordered creation rightly with boundaries. We see the same thing with the skies. He separates the waters above from the waters above. And then he establishes vegetation on it. But this is not ex nihilo, out of nothing. No, God is not speaking this into existence out of nothing. He is using the earth as the secondary cause by which he will bring forth vegetation on the earth. Seed-bearing plants 
bushes and grass and trees and fruit-bearing plants, those that would bring forth food fit to eat. And he gives all of these an ability to reproduce, he says, according to their kind, according to their type. God distinguishes and makes distinction and even sets boundaries, not just on the waters and the land, but boundaries upon the kinds of things that can reproduce here within vegetation. And so we see in this God's providence. God is not just bringing something into existence and then leaving it on its own. No, God is going to actively sustain it as the vegetation and the trees and the plants all continue to reproduce and bring forth more vegetation. God is sovereign even over this as he brings it about to bring forth more glory to himself. This is the third day. And so as we come to the end of this first section where God is finished forming the earth, we see that that which was formless in verse 2 is now fully formed. He has illumined that which was dark. He has formed that which was a formless wasteland. And now, as we continue into the days of creation, there's a second thing for us to see, and that's that God fills the earth with life for His glory. Now we have an earth that is not formless, but formed. But it is still empty, and God is going to fill it with life for His glory. On day four, we see that God brings the light sources into existence. He uses them to separate day from night and to signify days and seasons and years. But He also uses them to be the light source for the earth. And in each of these lights, the sun for the day and the, the moon for the night and all the stars are given dominion to rule over the day and the night. This shows that they will be the largest objects in the sky and given uh, superiority in their respective domains. And God's creation of the sun, moon, and stars here, I believe, would stand in stark contrast to the pagan idolaters of Egypt who would worship the sun and the moon and the stars. In fact, I remember as a child having a telescope and looking up at the stars of the night sky and observing all of the constellations and the beautiful patterns that God has set in the night sky. Many in times past of pagan idolaters have used those constellations as visuals for their gods. They've bowed down and worshipped. They've worshipped the sun and worshipped the moon and worshipped these various gods that take the shape of the constellations of the night sky. But instead of finding the beauty and the pattern that God has made, they've given themselves over to worshiping a false god. Instead of giving themselves to the worship of the God who made this beautiful design, they've given themselves to worshiping that which is created instead of the creator. And so in this day, we see the glory of God as he has brought all these things into existence. There are no other gods. The sun is not a god nor the moon. The constellations don't represent any other gods, but there is God alone who brought all of these into existence. On days five and six, God begins to bring the, the creation of the sky, and bring uh, creatures to fill the sky and the sea, the fish and the birds, uh, and he makes these living creatures distinct from plant life. That phrase, living creatures, refers to their having breath of life in them. They are animate creatures, distinct from the plant life that was made on day three. They're blessed and commanded to reproduce again according to their kinds. Look with me again at verse 20. 
excuse me, verse 21. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. And so God creates the birds to fill the sky, to fill the firmament, to fill the, the, the expanse above the earth that he created. And he creates the fish to fill the seas that he separated on the second day. And then he brings forth land animals to, to fill the earth, the land that he established uh, that will be the place of, of his glory. And they will reproduce again according to their kinds. And then on that sixth day is the culmination of God's creation. He makes man in his own image. We're going to revisit this next week, but for now, we want to note just a few things. God creates man in his image. He is created in the image of God, not merely according to his own kind as the rest of creation was, but God as a special act creates man as a living soul. Furthermore, God speaks in the first person regarding the creation of man. God says, let us make man in our image. In all of the rest of the acts of creation, God says, let there be light. Uh, and there was light. But here in verse 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our image in the first person, and indicating a personal intent regarding the creation of man. And he gives to man rulership or dominion over the entire creation that he has made as man will represent God on earth as his image bearers. That which God has formed and filled, God gives man dominion over it. And so we see on these second three days of creation, the fourth day, the fifth day, and the sixth day, that which was formless and empty has now been formed, but that which was empty is now filled with life to the glory of God. But I also think that it's interesting to note that the forming and the filling, there is correlation, there's arrangement between these two in showing us the, the order of the glory of the God that we serve. They're set up, to, uh, these days are set up so that the work is accomplished in a way that shows us not only the forming and the filling, but that the days of filling correspond to the days of forming. You see, day one, God creates the light. And on day four, the first day in which God fills the earth, he creates the light sources, the sun, the moon, and the stars to rule the sky. On day two, God creates the sky by separating water from water. And on day five, the, the second day of filling, God creates the sky creatures and the sea creatures. And on day three, God brings forth the dry land and all the vegetation. And on day six, the third day of filling, God creates the land animals and man in his own image to, uh, to then have dominion over it and have the plants as food. And so we see this particularly emphasized in the third day of creation and in the sixth day of creation because God creates two things on both of those days. On day three, he creates the land and then brings forth the vegetation. And then on day six, he creates all of the land animals and then creates man in his image. And so we see that twice in each of those passages, God says it was good. And so we have six days of work 
And in a few weeks, we'll address in chapter 2 the seventh day of creation in which God rests. And it's upon these seven days that we model our week. But even more importantly than that, many of you might know that that number seven is the Hebrew word for perfection, completion, uh, maturity. And so here we see God creating in seven days, as one author says, the work of the Creator which is marked by absolute perfection and flawless systematic orderliness, is distributed over seven days. Six days of labor and a seventh day set aside for the enjoyment of the completed task. There is much beauty in the symmetry of God's creation of the world, but it is even more important and even more beautiful because this is a historic account. This is a narrative. This is not mere poetry. And though we see all of the correspondence and all of the perfections and, and all of the, uh, the things that, that Moses is trying to show us about the order of God's creation, more than that, he is writing this as a narrative. For it takes that form of Hebrew narrative. After each day, it says, and then God made this. And then God made this. Day after day, time after time, God is forming all of these things for his glory, and we have a written account of the history of how God created the heavens and the earth. And as we come to verse 31, we read there that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Now that phrase, very good, is reserved for the sixth day of creation because it heightens that word good. It, it raises it to the nth degree. It shows us uh, that it truly is perfect now. It's good now. One author said, the harmony and perfection of the completed heavens and earth expresses more adequately the character of their creator than any of the separate components can. And so the goodness of God is on display on day one and day two and day three and so on of creation. But as, as, as creation culminates on day six, the goodness and greatness of God is on greater display as all of it sings together the praises of the God who made it. It is very good. It is complete. It is perfect. Creation itself before the fall is good. Now, marred by the effects of sin, brothers and sisters, we still ought to recognize the goodness of creation first because it points us toward the goodness of God. Much like the image of God in man has been marred by sin, there's still semblances there of our being made in the image of God. Same, in the same way in creation as God calls it good, there are still semblances and there is still a song there about the goodness and greatness of God in His creation. And as we view creation and marvel at it, we give praise and thanks to the God who made it, for it reflects His character. Because of his creative work, God is worthy of our worship. We see his wisdom, his goodness, his glory on display for us to see. But I also want us to note, brothers and sisters, that the God who made the heavens and the earth in six days, the creator of all things, is the same God who has performed the work of recreation in your souls. 
We talked about this last week as he, he does that as a Trinitarian act. But I want us to just stop and marvel at the fact of God who spoke all things into existence, who created everything that we see in six days, has worked in such a way that we who were broken by the fall and broken by sin would save us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Christ Jesus, that second person of the Godhead, our God and our Savior, maker of heaven and earth, who is himself an agent of creation, who brings order and light into existence, is the very light of our souls and the work of and the, the agent of recreation by which we have salvation and reconciliation to him. Dear Christian, when we look at creation, we marvel at the beauty of it and we stand in awe of the mountains and the trees and the beauty of God's creation. But the beauty of God's creation must drive us to worship Him for the work of recreation that He has accomplished in us. For as awesome as the work of creation is, how dumbfounding and awe-astounding it is, God has done a greater work in recreating you and I. We who were made in His image, broken by the fall, He is now working actively by His Son and by His Spirit to recreate us, renew that image in us, to make us who were called good in the very beginning, who are evil and wicked in all of our ways, He is working to make us good by bringing us and conforming us to the image of Christ His Son. As we behold the beauty of creation, remember that the God who made it all is forming you and making you in His image. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never heard of the work of recreation that God is doing in sinners. And Pastor Chris read from Acts 17 uh, earlier. And in those verses, Paul uh, tours the streets of Athens and he beholds all of these various idols and he says, I perceive you are a very religious people because of all of these idols that he's seeing. And as he tours the streets of Athens, he observes one particular idol to the unknown God. And their logic for this was just in case there's some deity that they didn't know about, some God that they hadn't yet heard about so that he would not be angry with them. They set up this idol to the unknown God so that once they learned his name and who he was, they could worship him as well. And so Paul proceeds to preach the gospel to the people of Athens, beginning with the God of creation who alone made all things and in whom we live and move and have our being. And he says, this God that you worship as the unknown God, it is him I proclaim to you. But dear friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ in the way that I'm talking about, in this saving way that he has worked and performed a work of recreation in your soul, the tour that Paul takes of Athens as he sees all of these idols might as well be a tour of your own heart. Idol after idol after idol as you worship the thing created rather than the creator. You've exchanged the truth of God and suppressed it in unrighteousness and you are now worshiping the creatures, the things that God has called good but not worthy of your worship. You are giving yourself over to the worship of them. And you might say, well, I, I believe in God the Creator, but yet to you, He is essentially unknown. 
He is the unknown God whom you have suppressed in your unrighteousness that you might give yourself to the worship of things created instead of the creator. And for all his glory on display in creation, you have willfully ignored his glory and his power. Even as you say you have respect for God, you worship him in ignorance of who he is and what he commands. For the God of the Bible created all things out of nothing. And at the end of his creating work, he said, all is very good. But Adam, the first man, plunged this world into chaos and into sin again. And you are one of his children. You are lost and broken and in sin and separated from the God who made all things and called it very good. But the good news of the gospel is that this God comes to you this morning by his spirit. That son of God who is an active agent in creation has stepped out of heaven into this corrupt and broken world to save idolaters such as yourself who have given yourself over to worship others while, while neglecting to give glory to his name. The second person of the Godhead, the son of God, stepped out of the glory of heaven and went to the cross bearing your shame, bearing your reproach, bearing your iniquity that you might be justified in the sight of the God who made the heavens and the earth. What love. Oh, what mercy. Oh, what grace. If you would repent of your sins, as Pastor Chris read earlier, God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day by which he will judge the world. And it will be that one man. It will be Christ Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the one who made the heavens and the earth by the word of his power. God will judge the earth by him and through him. And on the last day, there will only be two verdicts that will be rendered for you. Innocent, justified, or guilty. And if you are outside of Christ, you will be found guilty of your idolatry, guilty of your sin, guilty of your iniquity, guilty of your rebellion. But if you are in Christ, if you look to him in repentance and turning from your sin, looking to him for your righteousness alone, you will have salvation. You will have deliverance. You will have reconciliation to the God who made heaven and earth. Dear church, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the baptism of J.R. and Haley Wells. And it is in those baptismal waters that we see that picture. That God who made that water gives us it as a picture uh, that we can see them immersed in it and raised to walk in newness of life. And so brothers and sisters, might we, like them, walk in newness of life. As we reflect on our own baptism, as we remember the work of creation that, that God has worked in our own souls, may we take a fresh commitment this morning to walk in newness of life, pleasing to him, beholding his glory and his goodness and creation and living unto the praise of his name. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth for his glory. He formed that which was formless and he filled that which was empty. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh God, we come before you this morning thanking you for your grace and your mercy. Thanking you for the beauty of your creation that points us to your eternal attributes, points us to who you are. 
Father, I pray as we stand in awe of those things that we will remember that you've done a greater work than even creating and bringing all things into existence out of nothing. You have worked in dead men to bring them to life. You have worked in transgressors and enemies to make them friends and heirs. And so, Father, we praise you as indescribable and majestic and glorious and worthy of our praise this morning. Would you work in our hearts in such a way that we are more mindful of the work that you have done in us so that we might walk in newness of life and live for you. And for the one who does not know Christ, I pray, God, that you would by your spirit move in their souls, revealing yourself to them first in creation uh, by revealing your glory and your power, and then by your spirit through your word, revealing your love and your grace in the person of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.